Hi, I'm Mike Dilk and you're listening to the Relax Back UK show. The show that explores all kinds of health topics relevant to you, your family and your friends. Each week I talk to expert guests from a range of backgrounds to inform and entertain you. So please do join the Relax Back UK family and stay tuned. Hi, and thank you for joining me on this week's Relax Back UK show. The topics are diabetes and also plastic surgery. Now, we discussed diabetes before, but really it is an immense issue and set to get worse. It's predicted that five and a half million people will have diabetes in the UK by 2030. We look at ways to manage the disease with Sean Gaffney from Roche and Dr Amrit Lambda, he's a GP in Barnet, London then plastic surgery is a big step to take and requires some very careful thought. These days, you know, they, they tend to spend more time researching their, their new kitchen or the new bathroom suites than they, are, than they do surgery, uh, sadly. And I think it's, it's, it's a really big step that you need to obviously understand and, and, and take the appropriate actions beforehand. Plastic surgeon Alex Caradas, Kimberly Moriarty, a wellbeing coach, and Beth, a patient, talks about the steps to take before plastic surgery amongst other things that is so please do join us for a great show thank you i started off the chat with sean gaffney from roche and dr amrit lambda um talking about statistics maybe a good thing to start off with would be to, to focus the minds with uh, some, some statistics, which are actually rather stark. Um, I got some sent through a little bit earlier, and uh, there, there was one which was particularly alarming, um, and that's the number of cases of diabetes in Britain in total. You know, what 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 is the figure just now? Probably uh, is, uh, is Sean the person to answer that, maybe? Yeah, um, thank you, Mike. Um, and it's good to see you again. Yeah, the, the number of people living with diabetes in the UK has doubled, Mike, in the last 20 years, mainly due to the rapid rise in the number of people with type 2 diabetes. So to give you a statistic, it's predicted that five and a half million people will have diabetes in the UK by 2030. Five and a half million and the population uh, about 70 million. Yeah, I guess there are thereabouts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this this, this is a massive percentage uh, of the population, and then becomes more alarming when you start to look at some of the other statistics. Uh, so uh, th these statistics must be for the last year, I think. I mean, you can you can correct me, but um, how many amputations has that kind of led to? Um. To be honest with you, Mike, I, I, I don't have an accurate uh, figure on that. Amrit, are you aware of that kind of data? I don't have that off the top of my head, but, mm. um, you know, we've somewhere around, you know, uh, we're looking at, you know, around 180, 190 or so uh, amputations each week. Um, now amputations are one of the kind of uh, complications of diabetes that people are often very much aware of and, and hear from relatives perhaps who've had diabetes uh, and, and often strikes fear into people because that's obviously a, a debilitating complication. There are other complications as well, you know, stroke, uh, heart disease, um, heart failure uh, as well. So these are all complications that we want to try and avoid. Mm. Uh, and the good news is, you know, we are so much more far advanced in terms of our scientific understanding of diabetes 
the types of medications and the technology that we now have at our disposal, that uh, it, it really is a case of being able to prevent a lot of these complications. Good. There's genuine. I, I, I am I am definitely going to pick your brains about what we're going to do about it. But I just want to go ahead um, with with some of these statistics. So from from the press release, uh, mm -hmm. I, I had this. It was 184 amputations every week, 770 strokes every week, 590 heart attacks, and I'm assuming this is still every week, mm. and 2,300 cases of, of heart failure. You know, so when, when you start looking at, at these figures, you think, oh, my goodness, you know, this, this is moving towards a, a disastrous situation if we're not there already. Mm. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to have to pick it apart and see what the NHS can do for all that, and we will. But however, I want to come back to another basic question after just talking about those horrible uh, statistics. And I, I do ask this kind of almost every time when talking about diabetes on, on this show, because it's pretty basic stuff and it is important. Can you just summarise quickly the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, uh, e either of you? Sure, I'm happy to take that. Yeah, so... The more common type of diabetes is type 2 diabetes. So around 90% of people with diabetes in the UK, um, and if we look across the world generally as well, have type 2 diabetes. And that tends to be more related to lifestyle, particularly our modern day lifestyle. And in essence, it's when our body is carrying more weight than it needs. Uh, and what that results in is more fat being stored around the pancreas and around the liver. And so we develop insulin resistance. So the insulin that's produced by the pancreas is less effective. And over the long term, that can actually reduce to a, a decrease in the amount of insulin being produced by the pancreas as well. So our glucose regulation uh, is disrupted through that. Type 1 diabetes tends to occur in a much younger cohort of people. Um, and and the, the mechanism in which that occurs is more related to our immune system and our, an immune reaction against the pancreas, which affects essentially insulin production. And that, as I said, tends to occur at a much younger age, less common. Um, and so now we're saying, as Sean mentioned, that more than 5 million people in the UK for the first time having diabetes, the vast majority of those people have in fact type 2 diabetes. Right. OK, so, yeah, you're moving on, you know, what to do about it. But essentially, is is, is it out of control? Is the NHS overrun? I mean, you, you're at the sharp end. You're, you're, you're a GP dealing with the great British public every day. Um, you know, what, what's it like there <laughs> uh, in the muck and bullets? You know, yeah, absolutely. Well, you feel like it's just a, it's out of control. Well, we're seeing a lot more in terms of type 2 diabetes uh, on a daily basis. The number of people at my practice, for example, who are registered with type 2 diabetes has you know, increased substantially over the years. We're seeing a lot more patients actually who are younger and being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes as well. And I think that's a particular concern because we, we know from research and evidence that people who develop diabetes, type 2 diabetes at a younger age tend to have a more it can have a more aggressive form of the condition as well and be more prone to developing complications at an earlier stage in their lives. And they have to deal with this condition for a lot longer as well. Um, is it out of control is what you asked, uh, one of the questions yeah. you asked. I would say that obviously with rates increasing, we're having to find newer ways of managing it, better ways of managing it. 
Um, and as I alluded to earlier on, we do have um, uh, newer ways, more advanced ways of managing diabetes, but we have more at our disposal as well in terms of the number of people in the NHS working within diabetes. So if you went back about 10 years ago, um, most of the time it would be your GP and your practice nurse dealing with diabetes management. Now we have a much wider team at our disposal. We have a practice pharmacists uh, who are involved in specializing diabetes care. We have dietitians available within the community as well. And we have community clinics, which interact a lot with GP surgeries as well. So we've, we've had to pivot and change and adapt and adjust uh, because yes, we, we, we face this growing number of people living with diabetes. And so we've, we've had to adjust to it. And the, the fact is, if you're diagnosed with diabetes at an early stage, you can actually get over it. You, you can, you, you, you can def I don't know if defeat is the right word, but, you know, you, you, you can stop that diagnosis, can't you? Yeah, I think this is one of the great stories in diabetes. We're talking about type 2 diabetes here specifically. That's the, the type of diabetes that could be reversed. And I think that, as I said, one of the great stories in the last 5, 10 years is that we're now looking at type 2 diabetes no longer as a progressive condition. Again, if you went back in time, doctors would sit down with their patients and say, look, this is likely to progress, become more advanced as you get older. That's no longer the case. We have great evidence now to show that early uh, reduction in weight in particular, that's the real driver here, early uh, intense weight reduction, uh, especially in the first six years of being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, can lead to reversal or normalization of glucose levels. However, the risk remains there for the rest of your life. If you, if you let, relax a little bit, if the weight increases again, then those glucose levels will go back up. But there is that opportunity there. So that's, that's great hope, again, for any person who may be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, any of the listeners. Uh, there's real genuine hope that you can reverse those glucose levels okay and you referred to some other um, methods of dealing uh, with long-term diabetes sort of in the armory um, so perhaps now would be a, a good time to to bring in sean to sort of describe some of the things that are at you know at dp's disposal yeah it's uh, it's it's incredible how far things have come mike so Taking a step back for a moment, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, it taught us a lot of things, but one of those was how important the ability of healthcare professionals like Amrit uh, to remotely monitor patients can be. So this is particularly important in more rural areas or with housebound patients where perhaps travel to the hospital or to the doctor's surgery can be challenging for patients. And, and since the pandemic, digital tools and remote monitoring have seen a much wider uptake in use. Um, you know, diabetes has come a long way uh, in terms of its management over the past decades. And we've seen some great advances in technology to support self-management in particular in the digital connected space. So there are mobile health apps or mHealth, as sometimes they're referred to available, that can be used by patients to help them manage their condition, but also to increase their engagement with their health and reduce some of the burden of, of managing their diabetes. Um, not only can digital tools support remote monitoring of patients, but they have been proven and have been shown to have a really positive impact for people with diabetes in their day-to-day -day lives. Okay, so give us a bit more details. Does, does this actually 
in include kind of a blood sugar monitor that the patient wears the whole time or has presumably injected or placed under their skin and they wear it the whole time. And that kind of hooks up to their mobile phone, which has an alarm that goes beep, beep, beep. You know, if, if they if the blood sugar levels are need some some attention. Is, is that pretty much it? Simplified? Yeah, that's that's simplified really well. Like um, you can, you know, these uh, digital tools help you also log important therapy data, like you say, such as your blood sugar your meals, your activity, uh, your insulin in a much more convenient way than in the past where we were manually logging data in logbooks or on paper. So these apps will also help people living with diabetes with other important calculations, as you say, such as your insulin bolus requirement, and also allows you to download analytical reports of your diabetes management, whether it's for your own use or whether it's for sharing with your HCP uh, like Amrit. Right. So can these things also, because uh, Amrit was talking about how it's, you know, it's lifestyle associated, that sort of thing. Can these apps also take information from your exercise watch or that registers the amount of movement you do? So the, the massive information, you've got your blood sugar levels, you've got what you eat and how much exercise uh, you do. Can that all be kind of analysed in one place? Yes, in, in one word, absolutely, Mike, it can, which is incredible when you consider it, right? It is incredible. It sounds potentially extremely useful. Um, and that information can be seen not only by the patient, but it can be seen by the doctor as well. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, the number of people living with diabetes and all of those statistics. It's also really important to remember as well that diabetes has a huge human cost. So people living with diabetes, particularly, say, those who are using insulin to manage their condition, it's estimated that they have to make approximately 180 more decisions each day about their health than somebody without diabetes. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort, Mike, to check blood sugar levels regularly, make those healthy food choices, be physically active, remember to take medication, and all the other health-related decisions so many times a day and unfortunately people people living with diabetes they also experience disproportionately high rates of mental health problems such as depression anxiety and in some cases eating disorders compared to the rest of the population so the more we can connect people with their health and the more we can take that burden away the better outcomes we'll have for patients yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I get all that. However, I just want to tell you a little sort of anecdote. Um, and this isn't meant to be negative, but it's it's actually what happened to me yesterday, right? Mm. My heating broke down. I'm not talking about anything to do with my health. I'm talking about my heating in my home. And I had to redo my thermostat. Now, I remember the days when you just went click, 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 and it was a mechanical sort of thing, and it worked beautifully. However, because the battery on my thermostat had run out, it lost all its memory. It wouldn't talk to the kind of fancy electronic board which drives the underfloor heating. It just—it was all just a bit too complicated. And you know, yeah. okay, so I'm—I'm I'm not a great technical whiz, but yeah, you know, I like to think I can probably program a thermostat. But I—I I ended up having to call the helpline. <laughs> I couldn't do oh, wow. the damn thing. So. What what you're saying sounds fantastic, but could it just be kind of a bit too much for 
you know, regular people one more sort of thing to deal with. Maybe it's another one of those decisions. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really fair challenge, Mike. I think um, a lot of the apps that I'm certainly aware of, and indeed the the, the My Sugar app, which is which is the Roche app. In particular, that one was created uh, by people living with diabetes for people living with diabetes. So you do find that the majority of these apps are incredibly user friendly and are right. really, really easy to connect. One Let, of the let's things bring, that we bring uh, an Amrit, if I may. Yeah, so it's a great call. You, 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 you will have dealt with patients using these things. What, what do you find, Amrit? Well, I think if I take a step back, one of the biggest mistakes we made during the pandemic when we became more digital in healthcare was to assume who would take on that technology mm. well and who wouldn't. And I can put my hand up and say I was, you know, perhaps in that uh, boat as well uh, initially. We have some people who, you know, may on the surface seem unlikely to uh, adopt technology who have just flown with it. And have really gone well. We've had uh, people, you know, in their 90s who've uh, uh, <laughs> been using, um, you know, virtual consultations and uh, e-consultation apps with no problem at all. And you'd have people perhaps who you'd expect to just be uh, having a breeze with it who would struggle. So that would be my first thing. Mm. Second thing I'd say is that what we've learned as well whilst adopting all these technologies is the benefit of having a menu for patients uh, and options what works for one person may not work for another but we need to have options yeah. so it may not be that you know a completely 100 percent digital uh, healthcare system is what we can achieve and i think that's realistic we can't there needs to be the option of face-to-face -face. there needs to be the option of having a opportunity to walk into the practice and have a conversation mm. with someone if that works for them but then there's maybe the companies that are manufacturing these apps and technologies support through local resources from family, from support groups. But maybe you can have a bit of a middle ground as well. So I think everything's on the table. And I think ultimately what we're trying to achieve with all of these things is to engage with people. Because right. where diabetes really runs amok is when people are not able to engage with their healthcare professionals with the condition itself and I think living with the condition how can we ensure that they are as engaged as possible or as possible as they can be and I think that would be my overall yeah. take on it yeah no that, no that sounds like it's, it's very sensible indeed um now these um, amazing sort of te technology technological help we've been sort of describing with the app and the, the monitor that is kind of embedded in the patient the whole time and the exercise watch all, all this sort of stuff is this is this kind of thing available on the nhs or with the nhs help how, how, how does that work so i can speak to that so i can uh, say my experience so we we've uh, used it in our nhs practice uh, we've focused particularly on people living with type 2 diabetes who use insulin um, and we've used the My Sugar app. Uh, so these are people who would routinely be checking their blood glucose with a glucometer. Uh, so we've we've had access uh, on the NHS to My Sugar, and that's helped us uh, identify lots of different opportunities for these people. Um, not only improving glucose levels, 
uh, through its use, making life a little bit more convenient for both the person living with the condition and ourselves as clinicians. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And I know there are a number of apps available. Um, and I think really now we are in an opportunity where the NHS really is embracing this technology and is making it available. So it, it sounds like your experience that, you know, patients um, with diabetes using, using this technology are thriving. You know, they're getting on with life and I can see a big smile on your face. It looks like you've got patients that are really are doing really well with this stuff. Yeah, we've got some really wonderful examples of people whose engagement, and I come back to that word really, because they've just, you know, really started to understand some nuances of their condition, of how their body reacts to food and to their insulin. Um, and we've got some wonderful examples of engagement increasing, people feeling more confident as well uh, with it. Uh, and also having perhaps a, a more um, productive relationship with their GP surgery in this manner as well, because their GP or pharmacists within the GP practice are able to react and respond quite proactively to the data that they're being shared. Um, right. So yeah, we've got some excellent examples. Okay, excellent. And is, is that being taken on board by many doctors with the NHS? Maybe that's a question for Sean. You know, is, is AMRIT a bit of a one-off? Because obviously he's embracing the technology. Is a bit of a hard sell to lots of GPs? Um, to, to be honest, Mike, no, not at all. I mean, um, there is a really, really uh, impressive uptake of the use of not just the app we're discussing, but all um, use of digital tools. You know, you've seen the phenomenon around virtual wards as well. Um, you know, some people would refer to that as hospital at home, this idea that you allow patients to get hospital level or GP care level at home safely and in familiar surroundings, you know, really helping them to speed up their recovery, but also freeing up hospital beds. So no, there's there's a really, really impressive uptake of, of this kind of technology, Mike, and it's really proving beneficial for not just the patients, uh, but also for the healthcare professionals as well. Yeah, all right. So if, if people are listening to this and thinking, crikey, you know, this sounds interesting. I want to find out a bit more either because, you know, they, they have diabetes and they want to, you know, be able to manage it a little better. Or actually, they might be worried they move, might be moving in that direction and just looking for some basic information on how to try and you know, head it off at the pass or what they should do next. Where, where, where are some good resources for uh, people to look? And that, uh, both of you are interested yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, Amrit, I'm sure you have a number. I mean, there's some brilliant support and advice available for a number of organizations. Um, I would say uh, Diabetes UK uh, is, is, is also uh, JDRF, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Um, these kind of websites have some fantastic advice and some really, really good resources and support materials as you say, Mike, for people living with diabetes to help them best manage their condition. Yeah, Very absolutely. good. I, I'll just add to that the NHS website in itself. Of course. I have to plug that because that's a wealth of information of and signposts people really well, also. So, so um, NHS website would also be a brilliant resource to go to. Good. All right. So, the, uh, this is obviously a very important topic and it's becoming more and more important. So, Thank you very much indeed to both of you for chatting. I think that's potentially very useful and can help a lot of people. And, and Mike, thank you, because today is November the 14th, and that is World Diabetes Day. Every year it's commemorated on the 14th. 
it's a real opportunity to raise awareness about the impact of diabetes on the health of people, but also hopefully to highlight the opportunities to strengthen prevention, diagnosis and treatment as well. So thank you for giving us this opportunity. So for the next section, the topic is plastic surgery. And my guests are Kimberly Moriarty. She's a well-being coach. Beth, she's a patient of, of plastic surgery. And Mr. Alex Caradis, he's a consultant plastic surgeon. My first question uh, was for Kimberly. In, in the press release, uh, you talk about that you empower women to achieve emotional well-being and form lasting, fulfilling relationships without sacrificing identity so my first question actually is that really in line with having um plastic surgery you know if i i'll, I'll be loved or be i'll be happy if i change things a little bit are the two in line yeah i mean that what you're referring to is kind of what i do in, in my private coaching um work so a bit separate to what i do working with cosmetic surgery patients but i think Definitely, everybody wants to feel good about themselves. And where I come from in terms of, you know, my approach with supporting patients is really helping them feel good about themselves internally. And that's going to match that physical transformation that, you know, with that journey that they're going on. Okay. Do, do you ever suggest to some people that they, they shouldn't have plastic surgery, maybe? Absolutely not. I mean, that's not my job. I'm I'm there to support people. If people feel uh, confused about having surgery, that that's something I would explore with them. But it's really about what the person is presenting with. So I'm there to, you know, mentally and emotionally support them with whatever's coming up. So it really depends on the individual and what people, you know, what's going on for people with their surgical journey. Okay. All right. So you, you talk to them once kind of they've made this decision to, to go down this route? Yeah, most of the people I've spoken to have already made that commitment and actually have thought about it for years. So that's a question I will always ask is, how long have you been thinking about having this? And mostly it's like, you know, I've been thinking about this for five, 10 years. Right. Okay. So generally it's not something uh, people do lightly. Maybe it's a good time to to, to bring in Alex. Um, as far as you see, what, what are the benefits that people... Uh, get and um, do you talk things through and do you ever refuse to operate on people? Morning, good morning, Mike. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's really important um, for people to understand that um, you know when they come to me uh, requesting some surgery, uh, obviously I, I will have to ask some questions to see um, where where the mind is regarding this, and then of course I will look at the physical issues that they have. Um, and I then will question to see whether or not surgery will be in their benefit, because at the end of the day, it's possible that what they're requesting is not um, achievable through surgery. Um, and so I have to be honest with them and tell them, listen, you know, you don't understand the obviously the intricate uh, techniques uh, about surgery. And so that's why you come to me to, to be able to determine or not whether or not you are a suitable candidate. So, you know, I'll try to be frank and candid with them all the time. I, I, yeah, I'm not meaning to come across a, a negative in, in, in the first instance. So perhaps it's what kind of changes do you see? Do you see in patients? Well, I mean, obviously everybody has different different uh, requests and different needs, um, and sometimes they are developmental. Sometimes they're they're just born with something. 
um, that they're not entirely happy with. Uh, and so, you know, obviously I'll, I'll, I'll present a series of questions to them to try to understand, um, you know, what it is they're, 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 they're not happy with, uh, what they're trying to achieve, what their expectations are. Um, and then, of course, uh, yeah, I'll examine them and see, if, you know, if, if I think it, it's, it's something that I feel that they can get a, you know, a, a fairly reasonable um, surgical outcome uh, at the end of the day, then yes, I, I, I will, you know, explain the ins and outs about that type of surgery for them. Oh, okay. Well, maybe let, let, let's bring in someone who's who's been been there and uh, had surgery. So, Beth, you you you've had uh, surgery and um, a, 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 a couple of times. But t- take me through the thought process um, when you you were when you first had it done. Um, well, my breast just didn't form really at all, um, and I, I didn't feel very confident. I didn't feel very feminine. Um, there was a lot of things that would affect me. So trying to get clothes that fit, you know, they accommodate for breasts and I didn't have them. Um, and it, it really was quite, it it does affect you a lot more than what people might realise. Um, so I decided to have uh, breast implants put in, um, but I also needed an uplift because um, my areola was still facing down. So it wasn't in the right position already. So that's what led me to having my first surgery. Okay. And uh, and how long ago was that? That was in 2007. Okay. All right. Um, so, you you know, what, what I'm getting at is you, you thought very seriously about this and um, you were hoping it was going to um, improve your life, essentially. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, and I, it uh, it I did have the implants, so I had the shape um, in terms of under my clothing. I had the shape, um, but the actual results were disappointing, really. Right. Um, um, I was sorry. Go on. No, I was going to say. So what? So you had some disappointing uh, results. So t- what? What happened next? Um, I mean, it was down to the. The way in which they did my operation, I don't feel that they did the uplift. Um, they so when they do an uplift, um, they remove they remove the areola, but there's like a, it's like a lollipop scar. So you have one down from the middle of the areola going downwards, and I did not have the lollipop stick, if you like. Um, they just put the implant straight in through the nipple, so it didn't adjust the positioning at all. Um, and my scarring from the stitches was was really quite bad as well. Um, I was told that that would settle, um, but they were really, really bad, even up to before I had my second surgery last year. Okay, so you had a second surgery essentially to to fix what you thought hadn't been done terribly well first time round. Yeah, yeah, I did. Okay, and are, are you happier now? I'm delighted. <laughs> okay, so that you know. That you you are a plastic surgery uh, success. I am, yes, definitely. That's, that's very very good to hear. Um, so in ge- in general terms, and I, I guess this is a well a question for all of you, but maybe Alex more. Is there a current rise in interest in people having um, plastic surgery? And if you know, if so, what what do you think is bringing it about? I think I think uh, Michael there. Obviously, an increasing uh, awareness of plastic surgery and what it can do for people. 
Um, I think there's a lot of media um, attention around the, the, the subject. So, you know, people uh, through various means, um, you know, understand that things can be done. And I think if you probably ask most people, most people um, on the planet, if you ask them, are you entirely happy with your appearance? I think most people probably find one or two things that they, they feel they, they could change. I'm not saying they necessarily would change them. But, um, you know, they, 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 you know, given the opportunity, they might consider changing them. So I think that um, in line with that, if you then know that there is something that can be done um, through surgery, and um, you, you, you're right, you said that, you know, obviously in best case, she was a success. But, um, you know, one has to be very careful because, you know, it, it doesn't always you know, lead success, you know, if, if it hasn't been done correctly by the, by the appropriate individual um, or in the appropriate circumstances. So, you know, these are things that, that people need to take into consideration. Definitely going to come back and, and, and explore some of the things that can't, that don't always go quite so well. But but for now, what what's the most popular? What are people most interested in changing about themselves? I don't, I, I think, you know, we sometimes go through trends with these things that, for example, you might get a celebrity who who has an operation and suddenly everybody's aware of this operation and then, it, it suddenly you know, becomes a trend um, for that given moment, but you know it does change. But you know, the, all, on the whole, um, you know, there, there's a fairly consistent line with with a lot of sort of women, you know, requiring breast surgery as Beth had had, had herself. Um, as as we get older, obviously, a lot of people um, you know request some rejuvenating surgery, you know, facelift surgery. Uh, so that's always quite popular. Um, things that that always get um, requested are things like um, uh, nose operations as well. Um, so yeah, right. it, it 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 does vary, and for men particularly, we, we're getting a rise in in men requiring uh, surgery as well. Uh, interesting. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask about that. What, what yeah, what's the percentage, uh, men versus women? Well, in in the past, it used to be maybe about fifteen percent uh, compared to eighty five percent for women. Now I would probably say you know it, it's up to thirty five and forty percent. Um, uh, and, you know, men, men are men are just as vain as women are. We sometimes don't like to accept it, but we we, we certainly are. Okay, well, let me let me ask you a personal question here. On the press release, there's a photograph of you, and uh, I looked at your website, and it says you got 25 years experience. The two don't oh, seem to go together. You look like you're 30 years old. Have, uh, have, well, have you got a buddy of yours to uh, do you? You know, you do me, and I'll do you, kind of thing. <laughs> well, not 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 quite, but I, I do I do have obviously uh, staff who, who who work with me, and um, you know, we you know we we, we help each other sometimes. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, you're you're you are certainly not looking like you've got uh, 25 uh, years experience in the photo I, I'm I'm looking at. So something's working for you. Well, now, you know, next. We, we we alluded a little bit earlier that, uh, and in fact, uh, that's the experience of Beth. That things don't always go to plan. So you know, kind of what what are the potential uh, risks? Um, you know, can you explain? The, the potential risks and also when you're looking into doing there's some of the things that you you know just need to think about is, is, is that to, to, to me mike um well let's start off with you and then and then uh, move on yeah well like, obviously every procedure has its own inherent set of risks um which need people need to take into consideration um i think the most important thing is expectations um you know what what are you what are you expecting out of the surgery and you know meeting a patient's expectations is the single hardest thing that that, that we have to deal with uh, as surgeons um because you know if if they're not in alignment um you're going to get a disappointed patient um and you know things you know won't work out very well 
Um, so, you know, trying to meet your expectations is really important. That, that's where, where discussions are, are so important and crucial between the patient and the doctor. Um, and of course, you, you always have the um, general sort of um, possible risks that apply to all surgery, you know, things like infection, bleeding, um, and that, 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 that's any time you put a knife to, to the skin for any operation, it's always possible. Mm. <clears throat> and then, of course, you have the inherent risks uh, attached to the specific procedures that, that one requests. For example, um, you know, in best case, you know, with, with breast surgery and implants, um, you know, obviously there are certain um, details that people need to understand about with regarding implants. Uh, you know, the implants are not lifetime devices. They need to be changed again. There's also a possibility of what we call encapsulation or hardening of, of the implants. Um, you know, these are things that, that that women need to be aware of beforehand because it may uh, require further surgery down the road. Um, mm. And so they need to understand, you know, all, all the all these things before they enter these procedures. Let's take breast implants. I mean, how long do they last? So, you know, if if you're a young woman in your 20s having this having having this done, you know, do they, how long do these things last? You, well, when you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have to have the operation again ten years later. Absolutely right. I mean, I, I think if you, if you are twenty and you're considering surgery, you need to understand you're gonna have to have surgery again. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that the implants need to be changed, and you know, on average, we say lifespan of implants between ten and fifteen years. It may be longer. It may be less. Everybody's different. Um, also, you have to think about the fact that um, you know, as you get older, if you start off at the age of twenty having surgery, uh, as you get older, you know, your body, like in everybody, ages. Um, is subjected to the to the laws of gravity and things tend to, to drop a little bit with time uh, and you throw into the equation a pregnancy or two maybe weight changes uh, all that will affect your body it affects all our bodies um, so you know you might need to consider some further surgery down the line to to improve things again so yeah these these are things that the people need to understand and take seriously before um, considering these journeys and actually having presumably these operations are under general anesthetic um having a having a general anesthetic you know it's a big deal especially as you get older you know putting your body through that is not something to be taken lightly yes of course but having said that it's, it's not always about age it's about general fitness level because there are many people these days who are 60 70 and even 80 now who are extremely fit um and so you get an, a younger individual who perhaps has suffers with medical conditions and probably not quite as fit as somebody who's, who's a lot older than them so you know it is it is relative you know, relevant um you know relative to everybody sure let's bring beth back in because she's been through this and first of all wasn't happy uh with the results in in the in the process of you know choosing what to have done and choosing where to have it done that kind of thing um what how, give some advice on the decision making process such that people are likely to be uh, happier uh, with the results um, look at lots of different clinics first off. Don't don't just go for one that's well known. Um, I learned that the hard way the first time round. It was a very well known medical group, um, which actually gave me the PIP implants as well. And uh, they weren't interested at all in supporting me in terms of getting them replaced. Um, but yes, yeah, so I did a lot of research on different clinics and reviews um, and before and after pictures look at them, um, meet with the consultant, say Mr. Caridis, um, and just make a note of what the 
how you're spoken to from your very first point of contact, the first person you speak to, how do they make you feel over the phone? It's just, for me, when I spoke to Maxine for the first time, you can tell she cares about the fact that you're wrong. And, but there's no hard sell. There's no pressure to book an appointment or anything. Um, yeah, it was just... It's, it's how you're treated as well when you when you go for your consultation um and when you have your pre-op meeting with your with your cosmetic nurse um that that speaks volumes um and if you if something just doesn't feel right don't do it don't don't go with that clinic if it's you know look for somewhere else but um i i wouldn't go anywhere else if i wanted anything else doing i'd be right back to mr Caridas. Okay, all right. No, that, 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 that sounds like some good advice there. Let's bring Kimberly back in. Um, when you're talking to people, um, presumably your, your role is to talk to people before and after um, an operation. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I usually speak to people one or two weeks before they have their surgery and then again one or two weeks afterwards, depending on what suits them best. Right. And... Um, what kind of discussions do you have afterwards? You know, what what are, what are people's worries or concerns uh, and how do you help them afterwards? Yeah, you know, it really depends um, on the person, maybe on the surgery they're having. Sometimes when I speak to people afterwards, you know, they're delighted, they're starting to see their results. Some other people, um, some surgeries take a little bit longer to see the results. So there might be conversations around that and expectations. And I think it's natural for people to get impatient with the process. So really just guiding them through that, why you've done this, you know, why you chose Mr. Caritas, you know, and actually how long you know, it's been explained to you that it's going to take to see your results. And sometimes people just need a lot of emotional support in that part Um because the mind can start to wonder and, and think, well, you know, it's, it's been a week since my surgery. I'm not seeing this or it looks like this. And, yeah, it's for me, it's a lot of support around that. Okay. All right. Uh, that's, that sounds like it might well be necessary because I can imagine these things take a while to heal. Um, you know, um, it's not going to happen overnight, is it? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot, you know, there can be a lot of swelling. Sometimes people can get bruising and... Yeah, and they can start to worry about that, you know, especially if if they've got plans in the diary. And that's something I might talk to them about before they have surgery, that they don't have any pressure to be back out in the community or be seeing people if, if you know, they're not up for it. And the other thing is, like, telling people. Sometimes people haven't told anyone, but there's going to have to be that conversation if, if it's noticeable. So sometimes people have a lot of um, anxiety around that. Do you find people actually will have surgery for a specific event, like have surgery before their wedding day or something like that? That's never come up for me, no. A lot of the time the people I've spoken to, like I said, um, they've been thinking about it for a long time. It's something that they've been unhappy with and, you know, they've either finally got the finances or they've gotten to a point where they can't, they don't want to live with it anymore and they're able to do something about it. Oh, Okay. Final, final question to, well, all of you, um, really, because there's, there's a lot of talk about this at the moment, and that's going overseas to have plastic surgery done. Uh, well, all sorts of things, actually. People go do it for dental work and uh, all, all the rest of it. Um, 
Any advice in general about that? Well, I think, um, Mike, I think it's important to, to point out that um, the actual surgery, um, the actual event of the surgery is just one aspect of the whole journey. Um, it, it's all about the follow-up, uh, the backup, and the support that uh, one needs following the surgery as well. And unfortunately, if you just go fly out to some country to have the operation, yes, you'll have the operation. But what happens if something goes wrong or something doesn't go exactly according to plan? You know, how do you sort of, you know, go back to see the surgeon when he's a few thousand miles away? Um, it's not easy to, to do everything through Zoom or through phone calls. And sometimes you need to see the patient. Uh, and so, you know, there, there is a problem there. And, you know, the other thing is, of course, if you're not happy with the outcome of the surgery, where, where, where's the comeback? You know, it, it's not easy to to, to get any sort of um, um, justice, if you like, if, if your surgery hasn't gone the way you want to, if, particularly if, if, they, if they don't sort of respond to your needs afterwards. So these are things that patients sure. need to really fully understand before they just think of the fact that it's cheaper surgery, I'll go do it there, and uh, I'll be happy. You may be happy, but it's also possible you might not be happy. No, no, I get it. I get it. All right, so if, if people have been thinking about plastic surgery, maybe for a long time or what have you, where is a good um, resource where they can get, you know, good information to really help them make the decision whether that it's a sensible thing for them to do in the first place and if they then decide that where to go? Where, where's some good information resources? Well, I think from my point of view, I think it, it, I always tell people knowledge is king. So you have knowledge at your fingertips now with the Internet and you can you know, read up as much as you can about your operation, uh, because if you arm yourself with this knowledge, then you're in a much better position to ask the appropriate questions. Um, but, you know, I think recommendations are really quite important as well. If you have sort of family friends, uh, family or friends who've had some surgery and you know they've had a good outcome you know good support with the whole thing and i really really want to stress that support is so important you know as surgeons we just do the operation but i rely on a whole team of people behind me to to, to help along with, with the whole journey because i i can't do everything because obviously there's only so many hours today um so it's really really important um but i think you could also then ask uh, your gp if you have a good relationship with gp he might be aware of, of, of surgeons um you know who do particular operations there are different forums. There are different associations that you can look at. You know, British Association of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, um, and you know, in, in in general, I think that if, if you arm yourself with all this knowledge, um, and then you, once you have that, then you can make it do a short list of, of of surgeons you 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 you'd like to go see and 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 go have a chat with them and see how how it feels because it's got to be the right chemistry between you and the surgeon. Um, because you have to understand if you have a problem, you've got to be comfortable being able to ask that, that surgeon uh, questions, you know, should the, should the need arise. Um, so you, you have to have a feel for, for, you know, whether it's the right place for you or not. And unfortunately, people these days, you know, they, they tend to spend more time researching their, their new kitchen or the new bathroom suites than they, are, than they do surgery, uh, sadly. And I think it's, it's, it's a really big step that you need to obviously understand and, and, and take the appropriate actions beforehand. There's no question it's a big step and uh, research is uh, certainly um, the first part of that. Um, all right, look, interesting stuff. Um, Kimberly, Beth and Alex, thank you very much indeed uh, for chatting on the subject. And uh, I, th I think some of the listeners will find that uh, interesting, intriguing, all the rest. So many thanks. Thank you, Mike.
Many thanks to my guests on this week's show, and they were Sean Gaffney of Roche and Dr. Amrit Lambda, GP in London, talking about diabetes. And then on the topic of plastic surgery, it was Kimberly Moriarty, uh, Beth, who was a patient and a consultant, consultant plastic surgeon, Dr. Alex Caradis. And of course, a big thank you to you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Relax Back UK show. Join me, Mike Dilk, again next week for more fascinating interviews and chat. If you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe, like, and share it with your family and friends. And have a healthy week. Until next week.